the entire sort of power structure of Thailand is built upon the monarchy and the military. And so for them to have real monarchical reform would put that structure completely in, into danger. Welcome back to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs, the entirely student-run podcast out of Johns Hopkins University. For several months now, tens of thousands of Thais have taken to the streets of Thailand to demand constitutional and monarchical reforms. The movement gained steam in September and October, galvanized by student groups organizing pro-democracy protests over social media. What sparked these protests? What are the specifics of their demands? What may be the government's response? And why is Katniss Everdeen's famous three-finger salute a symbol of Thai resistance? To help us answer these questions, to end the podcast, we're joined by Joshua Kurlancic. Joshua Kurlancic is Senior Fellow for Southeast Asia at the Council on Foreign Relations. He is the author, most recently, of A Great Place to Have a War, America in Laos, and the Birth of a Military CIA. Mr. Kurlancic was previously a visiting scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where he studied Southeast Asian politics and economics and China's relations with Southeast Asia. We hope you enjoy today's episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. All right, Josh, thanks so much for joining us today on the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Thanks for having me. So to start off the podcast, we kind of like just a general overview of the protests in Thailand and then move into more of the specifics later in the episode. So to get us situated, what are the protests that are taking place in Thailand right now? How many people are involved and what types of people are actually protesting? Well, the protests started earlier this year focusing on uh, the desire for some democratic reforms. Um, Thailand <clears throat> had an election last year, but it was not exactly a free and fair election. It was kind of uh, the rules for it were kind of rigged by the military and Thailand wound up with a, <clears throat> a pro-military party with a former coup leader as in, uh, running the government as prime minister. So the protests began, I mean, people have been upset since 2014 when there was a coup that led to several years of coup rule and then finally this election. But the, the protests were really focused initially more on reforms um, to the constitution that the military essentially pushed through um, and for the prime minister, Prayut Chan-Wucha, to resign and dissolve parliament and call a new election. As the protest went on, there's been more focus on calling for reform of the monarchy in Thailand too. Um, even though Thailand is officially a constitutional monarchy, it, it really doesn't it, do, it doesn't really uh, operate like that. Um, in reality, the the king wields quite a significant amount of power over the military, over the economy, and politics. And so students. Have, and the, uh, the protests were many young people, students and others, but it expanded. Um, they have increasingly been calling for reform of the monarchical institution too, to make it more like a real constitutional monarchy, um, which is a fairly taboo subject in Thailand because there are very strict laws protecting any, basically any kind of negative speech about the monarchy. So even to call for reform of the monarchy could potentially get you in trouble. There's also, you know, con there's concerns from some of the protesters that the king should simply reside in Thailand. He, he spends most of his time in Germany. Um, so that's been raised um, as well. Um, a, a significant percentage of the protesters are younger people, but older people have joined in too. And the protests were first primarily in Bangkok, but they have spread to some other parts of the country as well. So I, you just touched on this, but I'm, I'm interested. 
Um, in the protest spreading, is this is there a kind of urban versus rural divide in who's protesting and why, or is it um, like you said, like you said, it's spread, but I mean, how widespread is it? There have been protests in a number of different places. Other protests were centered in Bangkok. There is an urban versus rural divide in Thailand, but it doesn't necessarily, not sure how much it relates to this. I mean, actually, traditionally, the urban areas like Bangkok were more sort of conservative and pro-royalist and more against change to the royal institution. Um, Not that people in rural areas were, but in the past 20 years, there's more rural voters who voted for parties that wanted to kind of shake up Thailand's politics, a series of populist parties, et cetera. Um, But yeah, the protests have, and some of the protests in Bangkok have attracted people from rural areas too. So I wouldn't say there's a rural urban divide over this issue, although there are many other issues in Thailand. That makes sense. And in terms of the tactics that the protesters have been using, um, we've covered a lot of protests on this podcast. We talked about protests in Nigeria, Hong Kong, and Belarus. Um, and it's interesting to just hear about you know how these protests are actually taking place. For example, in Belarus, they're mostly peaceful, just enormous marches. What do the protests on the ground look like in um, in Thailand? What are the kind of tactics the protesters have been using? Um, I mean, the protesters have held large rallies and they have adopted some symbols like they adopted the hunger games salute they've held they're fairly active on social media using hashtags to criticize um politicians and even the monarchy which has become more common now but was fairly uncommon in the past they have you know tried to have protests all over the country to show that it's a national movement um there, there hasn't yet been, I mean, there's been some confrontation with sort of counter protesters, but not, not yet um, any more aggressive action, but it's a con- certainly a concern that uh, there will eventually be some sort of crackdown either from counter protesters. Or- and last thing, and then I'll pass it off to Julia, um, is I know you said that the, you know, the protests kind of stem from 2014 over the military coup, um, but was there any specific event that you know, like, why is this happening in 2020? No, I didn't say that these protests, I mean, it's insane. There was been unhappiness since 2014 in some segments of the population. After the election in 2019, which supporters of the parties that didn't win were angered by because the election wasn't really free and fair, that leading opposition party was banned in early 2020, and its um, leaders also banned from politics for a long period of time. So anger just kind of built up. But in the years after 2014 until the last year and a half, the protests weren't really allowed. I mean, anyone, the military had a very strict laws in force after the coup and any sort of protests were immediately broken up. So there was a loosening of that after the 2019 election also provided an opportunity for um, protests. I mean, there were some other initial triggers too. Students were protesting um, because they thought, um, rules about the students' uh, dress and the regulations at schools were too onerous, but that it quickly, you know, turned into protests related to democracy and then eventually monarchical reform. Josh, you mentioned that um, the protesters actually are using the Hunger Games three-fingered sign, and I just think that's super interesting, even when I read about it um, before, and so I'm wondering if you could just give our listeners a little bit of like background, if there is known, like why are they using that symbol? Um, 
Yeah, I mean, some activists in Thailand have been using that for quite a few years because as a symbol of defiance to the military, um, they first started doing it after the coup when people were doing it and it became like a politicized issue that the, in the coup, post-2014 coup era, the military was trying to ban the ban using three-finger Hunger Games sign, and that didn't really work. And so um, it's sort of taken hold more again with these protests. And, you know, some some people say that it, the three fingers signify uh, some of their demands, like they want an investigation into intimidation and disappearances and killings of Thai dissidents, and they want political reform, and they want constitutional or monarchical reform. But yeah, it's just, it's taken off um, with these protests. And you've also kind of gotten a little into how the political system in Thailand is not really a traditional constitutional monarchy. And to kind of help us better understand the demands of the protesters, I'm wondering if you would mind giving our listeners a bit of a wider overview of the political system in Thailand? Sure. I mean, Thailand is technically a constitutional monarchy, no different than the United Kingdom or the Netherlands or Japan, which are constitutional monarchies in which the sovereign is the head of state, but has no actual powers over politics and is just there to perform state duties. The, The government exists independently. In Thailand, that is technically the case, but it's not really the case. For one, harsh laws against lameness that protect the king and other senior royals from any criticism. Uh, There are some laws like that in other parts of the world, but none as extreme as Thailand. Secondly, the king has control of a vast um, fund called the Crown Property Bureau, which is worth tens of billions of dollars. It makes him and other royals incredibly powerful in the Thai economy. They're across, they have holdings and cross-listings in many Thai blue chip companies, as well as a huge portfolio of real estate in the kingdom and other assets. The, the king also has direct control over several important sectors of the military. It's not like the military serves in the United Kingdom and sings God save the queen, but the, the king of Thailand actually has direct control over several military units that answer to him. The king also has, in both this king and the prior king, have intervened repeatedly in the political system in a way that just doesn't happen anymore in true constitutional monarchies. Um, so in the 2019 election, in the Ranfi election, the king made a statement that forced a potential opposition leader to step down, directly intervening in, in the uh, run-up to an election. In other times, like in, in 2006, the king's father essentially sanctified a coup against the previous elected government. And there have been many examples like that. but. So the king exerts influence over politics directly. He also exerts influence over politics indirectly through a whole web of allies who have very significant power over Thai business, Thai politics, and the Thai military. So it's not really an actual constitutional monarchy. And so we're kind of wondering, what's the what's the deal with King Vajira Longkorn, who's the current king right now? Why is he the center or why is he at the center of this wave of protests? Well, I think some of these issues have dated back, um, and they ex- the, the, some, of, um, some of the same issues dated back under his father, King Bumibong, who did intervene in politics and was not an actually a constitutional monarchy then. However, the prior king was more discreet about his interventions. And to be fair, some a couple times his interventions were productive. He intervened on several occasions when 
Thailand was having other protests and bloodshed and to calm the bloodshed. Although overall, his interventions tended to be more favorable to the military. But irregardless, he was more discreet about his interventions, um, whereas the current king has not been. This prior king also was genuinely loved by a lot of Thais because he did spend his time in the country and did a lot of good works, charity works, and built up a positive public image <clears throat> over decades, whereas the current king, even before he became king, had a very negative public image in Thailand due to a lot of things. Um, and um, so he wasn't going to get the benefit of the doubt. And that, that combined the fact that the current king is doesn't have the popularity of the prior king, combined with the current king being much more aggressive and wielding all sorts of power, combined with years of anger building up from the 2014 coup and then the 2019 sort of unfree and fair election has, you know, I think led to this moment. And you've also kind of touched on the reforms that the protesters have called for, including uh, maybe wanting the king to reside more in Thailand instead of Germany. Uh, were there any other reforms specifically that the protesters were calling for, especially in regard to the royal family? Yeah, I, I would have to look that up. I mean, yes, there has been somewhat vague. Um, I mean, they they, they um, want the king to uh, hand the crown prop, property bureau back to um, the way it was in the past under his father or even more than that, where it was, even though his father was technically a titular head, um, they had... Um, a team of technocrats who ran the Crown Property Bureau and both in theory made wise investments and also prevented it from becoming sort of a personal curse of the of the, the royal family. Um, they they want an investigation and into why anti-royalist dissidents have been disappeared and killed in Laos and other countries around Thailand. Um, they want uh, they want a constitutional reform that constitutional reforms that would um, potentially re- more codify the uh, role of the crown. That, that's I mean they they want to basically want to have the monarchy operate actually under the constitution and have stricter violence for it. But as far as I know, beyond that, they haven't outlined a specific set of co- constitutional demands for the king. I mean that would be a very tricky thing to do. And also, before I pass this off again to Zach, you touched on the laws in Thailand against speaking out against the royal family. And I think those are called Les Majestés. Um, And so I guess I just wanted to go a little bit more into that. If you could just give our listeners like what exactly that law is and also like how has that made criticizing the royal family um, and calling for these reforms more difficult, but also like how does that how does that like occur work right now when people are actually calling for reforms and um criticizing are they breaking the law right now what's happening there yeah i mean the limitless law says it's illegal to insult senior royalty and although it wasn't necessarily enforced that much in the past in the past 10 20 years as thailand's tensions political tensions have become more extreme and there's been more of a clash between sort of more pro-royalist conservative parties and politicians and others, the laws have increasingly been used, um, the number of cases, until the, the current king has actually called for people not to be charged under Lima Just, but the overall the number of cases was increasing quite sharply and and um, it was getting um, absurd. I mean, people were being charged under Lima Just for insulting past kings who have been dead for hundreds of years. There's this, And there's a second part of it under a Computer Crimes Act, which also 
extremely restricts speech about Oaxaca um, online. So yeah, in theory, um, quite a few of these people potentially would be insulting the monarchy, although the law doesn't specifically say what's insulting the monarchy. Um, but anyone can file a lay majestic complaint against anyone else. It's not just the king who has to file it. And people are filed them all the time and they get investigated by the police. So it is certainly a possibility that a number of the people involved in these protests will be charged with lay majest. I don't know. I mean, it depends on what eventually what direction the government um, wants to take whether they want to, to crack down, they want to come up with some compromise. But certainly by um, openly criticizing the monarchy in these protests, they could the protesters could definitely be jailed for way much So Josh, I, I've read in a couple of places that um, I, I've read in a couple of places that have outlined one of the kind of structural issues um, in these protests are kind of economic grievances over a kind of slowed down economic growth in Thailand for a couple of years. Is that a correct analysis of the situation? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it has one one factor. Uh, there's been slow economic growth, um, I mean, by regional standards, and it's been hard for young university graduates to find jobs, which is probably another thing driving unrest among young people. Um, of course, the economic growth was made worse by the pandemic. Um, Thailand is a major trading economy and also heavily dependent on tourism. <clears throat> there's, there's basically no tourism now. Um, although it must be said that although the, the current Thai government is run by a former coup leader and didn't hold a very free or fair election last year, they have had an excellent response to COVID, one of the best in the whole world. Despite that, I mean, people aren't aren't traveling. So yeah, there are economic factors as, as well. And also beyond the, um, Thailand has had seen a number of military coups in its history. I think the most recent one was 2014. And so I guess my question is, is there a chance that the military might get involved and um, impose martial law due to these protest or has, has this occurred already? Well, they imposed an emergency. There was an emergency um, decree anyway, a state of emergency, but that's not really martial law. It, yeah, I mean, they don't really, it doesn't necessarily, I mean, the emergency order, which was put into effect in the middle of the protest and then lifted a few weeks ago, wasn't exactly martial law, but I think the greater concern would be if the protests build up again, that at some point the military might try to step in. You never really know in Thailand and have a coup. Even though the military government is the, mil- the government is essentially a pro-military government, they could have a sort of self-coup. Thailand's had more coups in the last 70 or 80 years than any other country in the world. So the military have, um, views itself as a, the protector of order and intimately involved in politics. So there's always the potential that any sort of unrest could uh, lead to a coup. And Joshua, looking forward, um, given with what you just said regarding a coup, like what is the likelihood that the demands of protesters are actually met? And if not, you know, what might be the conclusion of this protest movement? Um, would protesters possibly just give up and go home? Or, you know, what is the outlook for, for the future here? I don't think that they're going to give in on these demands about the reform. Um, there may be at some point a willingness by the government to make some compromises about some issues in order to uh, placate the protesters, some efforts to show that they're attempting to 
boost growth and help younger people get jobs. Maybe some, maybe some um, surface efforts to persuade the protesters by doing investigations into disappearance and deaths abroad. I don't think the government is going to give up power just because of the protesters, and I don't think that they're going to engage in monarchical reform because the entire sort of power structure of Thailand is built upon the monarchy and the military. And so for them to have real monarchical reform would <clears throat> put that structure completely in, uh, into danger. I don't know that the protesters will go away. I don't know. I mean, I, maybe they will at a certain point if they feel like some of the demands have been met, or maybe at some point the military will feel they need to be useful. My kind of last thought, Josh, is, um, you know, I'm interested because in the some of the other protests that we've covered on the podcast recently, especially in Belarus, there's a lot of dynamics regarding neighboring countries. Um, for Belarus, particularly Russia, um, and how Vladimir Putin sees the protests in Belarus as a big effect of um, what actually happens on the ground in Belarus. I'm wondering, are other Southeast Asia or, or South Asian countries viewing these protests? And is there kind of an international element of this? Or is this a mainly a domestic issue. Yeah, I mean, the other Southeast Asian countries are not generally going to be involved in um, commenting too much on Thailand's internal affairs. That's always, most Southeast Asian countries tend to avoid avoid that. And remember that quite a few of the other Southeast Asian countries are more authoritarian than Thailand, uh, like Vietnam, Laos, Myanmar, Brunei. So they don't want to, uh, they don't really want to comment on protests in Thailand. And even the countries that are not as authoritarian in Malaysia, Singapore, Indonesia, the Philippines to some extent, they're also not tend to be pretty quiet about rights abuses in the region. So I don't think it's a factor. It might be something of a factor that major international democracies in the past were critical of Thailand in times like this, like Australia, United States, the European Union, Japan to some extent have been mostly silent because they got their own problems right now. But in terms of other regional countries, and yeah, they don't really—they're not really interested in meddling in other countries' affairs. Hmm. And that makes sense, Josh. But something I'm interested in is kind of the spilling over of protests from one country to another by kind of um, by kind of inspiring these movements. I mean, I I think the best example is probably the Arab Spring. Not saying anything like that would happen, but is there any chance in these other authoritarian countries in Southeast Asia that you just? outlined, is there any chance that there would be some sort of protest movement in those countries inspired by protest movements in Thailand? Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, there probably are a fair number of people in Laos and Vietnam, Cambodia, who would like to, but I mean, th those places are much, much more authoritarian and with much tighter control over society. So I don't think so. I mean, there have been a lot of, there is regular protests, at least before COVID in Malaysia and Myanmar and Indonesia, some of the freer countries in the region. But no, I don't think there's going to be much change in the most authoritarian states in the region, like Laos, Vietnam, or Cambodia. If anything, in the last few years, those states have become more authoritarian. Thank you so much, Josh, for coming on the podcast. Before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask you if there were any points about Thailand or related to the protests that we missed that you kind of wanted to elaborate on. No, not offhand. I mean, I do think it's worth emphasizing that the whole global environment has become um, one in which democracy is receding. And also the idea of democracy promotion has gone largely out of favor even before COVID. So that, that empowers um, anti-democratic elements in Thailand, just like in any other country. All right, Josh. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. It's been great to have you. Okay. Thanks for having me. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We'd like to thank the International Studies Department and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Subscribe on iTunes, give us a follow on Spotify, and leave a comment. We'll see you next time.